A reading from John, chapter 3, verses 1 to 16. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The word of the Lord. In his book, Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell makes this projection or this idea, this theory that he has, that it takes roughly 10,000 hours of practice to achieve mastery in any given area. In Gladwell's book, Outliers, he looks at very successful people and some of the things that are in common in each of their lives. One of his areas of study went to look at a group of psychologists in Berlin who were studying violin students. This psychological study was tracking the amount of hours of practice that violin students did from childhood into adolescence into adulthood. And here's what he found, is basically all of these adult violinists started practicing the violin at about age five. And between age five and eight, they roughly did the same amount of hours of practice. But somewhere about age eight, the amount of hours of practice they did began to diverge greatly. So that by age 20, those who were expert master violinists had practiced roughly 10,000 hours. And those who were a level below them had only practiced about 4,000 hours. More than double the amount of practice to achieve that next level of excellence. 
Similarly, he tells the story of Bill Gates. You might know Bill Gates. He founded this thing called Microsoft when he dropped out of college in 1975 with his friend Paul Allen. The theory being, drop out of college and you too can become a billionaire. And of course, that wasn't the basic theory that, that, Gates, that uh, Malcolm Gladwell was going on. Instead, what he did was he tracked both Paul Allen and Bill Gates and found that both of them had a unique amount of software programming hours by the time they hit college. And it went back to 1968, when both were in eighth grade in a unique private school outside of Seattle, Washington. This private school had one of only a few supercomputers in the entire country. Only a handful of universities had such supercomputers, and Bill Gates' middle school had one. And so he and Paul Allen became addicted to programming. The two of them would sneak out at night as teenagers to program all night long. They would sneak into the University of Washington nearby, which also happened to have one of these supercomputers. By the time they hit college, they had more programming hours than any of their professors. Microsoft was not an accident. And again, similarly, Malcolm Gladwell tracks a band that in 1968 was a mere high school rock band. They got a gig in Hamburg, Germany. The gig led to other gigs, and eventually they had a contract. The contract had these guys playing all the time, and at first, nobody wanted to hear them. They were underpaid, the venues were terrible, but they were getting hours and hours of playing time. Over the course of time, these guys got better. By 1962, they were in such demand that these guys were playing eight hours a night, seven days a week. So in 1964, when the Beatles hit the international scene, they had already logged 1,200 concerts together. It was not talent alone. There was a lot of hard work. I'm not sure what I've put 10,000 hours into. Looney Tunes and sitcom reruns might be the only thing I could think of in my past. I'm not sure that advances me anywhere. But we get this basic principle. We see that Malcolm Gladwell's idea seems to make sense to us. In order to get to that level of achievement, to be the best in any particular area or field, you need hours and hours and hours of devoted practice. And I think we also can apply, or often we apply, I should say, often we apply that to our spiritual lives as well. So when we look at ourselves and we think, man, I'd really like to be as godly as that man, as wise as that woman, as holy as my pastor. No, seriously, why are we laughing? No, but if you think about that, you look at other people and you think, I want to be like them. I wish I could be a better parent. Or I just wish I wasn't controlled by fear the way I am. I wish I was more loving. And is the difference between those who are and those who aren't 4,000 versus 10,000 hours of religious practice? Nicodemus, the conversation partner with Jesus in John chapter 3, came from a school of thought which would have roughly said, yes, you need those hours and hours of practice. You see, Nicodemus, according to our story, was a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, and Jesus calls him later the teacher of Israel, not even a teacher. So here's what we know about Nicodemus. As a Pharisee, it meant he was a rabbi. A rabbi, like a minister, 
in that day and age was somebody who studied the Torah. They knew the Hebrew scriptures in and out. They had understood all the nuances of theology, and they practiced with faithful meticulousness every rule that was out there for religious goodness. And on top of that, Nicodemus is called a ruler, one of the rulers of the Jews. This likely means that he was part of the Sanhedrin. That was one of 23 ruling elders in all of Israel. They met in Jerusalem. It was a combination of rabbis and priests who were considered the wisest, most faithful religious men in the whole country. And when it came to deciding things about faith and the faith of the people, they had the final say on everything. This meant Nicodemus had dealt with years and years and years of faithful, disciplined walking in his religious faith. And then Nicodemus comes along one night and he meets with Jesus. He comes to Jesus and says to him, Jesus, we know you are from God. We've seen the signs that you have done. And basically what what Nicodemus is doing is he's trying to have a -a tete-a-tete, a head-to-head with Jesus to learn more. He wants to understand something about what Jesus might want to share with him. And, And the question that I was asking as I was reading this is, what did Nicodemus want? What was he after? And I think that from what Nicodemus does in this conversation, I think he was just trying to learn. In the same way that you and I might go to somebody wiser for some pointers or tips or advice. My youngest son is already keen on learning how to drive. He has years to go before that time, but I'm always glad to share with him as much wisdom as I can about why you get to turn right on red after coming to a full stop or how to kind of keep track of all the signs and know where you're supposed to be going, how eight you're fine, nine you're mine, or keep your one hand on the horn so you're ready to honk if anybody cuts you off. Those sorts of important lessons that he needs to learn to navigate Northern Virginia roads. Another one of my sons, um, he's, he's not interested in learning to drive, but he plays baseball, and a couple years ago, he had a baseball instructor, an assistant coach, who had one of the best eyes and minds for baseball swings that I've ever seen. He could diagnose a kid's swing and the things wrong with it in one quick look. And so he worked with my son, adjusting his stance, adjusting the body turn, getting everything just right so the bat would come across the plane over the, over the plate perfectly. We go to experts, we go to those that are wiser for advice, for wisdom, for tips, for pointers, adjusting our mechanics, readjusting our course of direction. And we think about our spiritual life in much the same way. We think about spiritual disciplines, reading the Bible or praying. And and honestly, if many of you have never actually opened the Bible and read it, it is helpful to talk to somebody else and say, what do you do? What are you supposed to do when you read the Bible? Or how is it that you pray? I've never really prayed before. And it's one of the reasons why we do small groups. We get together with others to learn from one another. I think Nicodemus is coming to Jesus because he wants to learn, he wants to grow. He thinks, this Jesus might have something to help me out, to adjust my swing just a little bit. Give me one more pointer along the way. But Jesus' answer completely confounds Nicodemus. What Jesus says to him did not fit any of the categories that Nicodemus, this wise religious leader, was expecting. Jesus says, I tell you what, Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
He goes on to say, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, you as you currently are, Nicodemus, are not okay. You must be born again. This must be an act of God by his Spirit giving life to you in a way that you don't currently have. In other words, Nicodemus, knowing and experiencing God and entering into his kingdom is not something we do. It's not a matter of turning over a new leaf like many of us do with the new year when we change our diet and our exercise plan in order to get in shape. Experiencing God and his love and eternal life is not about discipline and order and turning over the new leaf. It's about new desires in your heart that you can't put there, Nicodemus. The Spirit of God must enter and bring life to you. We read that in our Ezekiel passage. In Ezekiel 36, the the prophet is looking for that day when God would come and take our heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh by his Spirit. In other words, by nature, your heart is a stone towards God. Only when the Spirit of God comes into you can it become a heart of flesh, a soft heart, willing to obey and seek God. Jesus emphasizes, Nicodemus, you must be born again. I I wonder um, if you could answer this question. Did you make a good choice, that most important of choices that you made in life? Did you make a good choice? Did you choose the right parents? Did you choose the right birth parents? Did you choose the right birth date? You know, the right year, the right day, the right month? We did nothing, right? Whether good or bad parents, it happened to us. This is a sense of what Jesus is suggesting and why Nicodemus is so thrown. And essentially what he's saying is, Nicodemus, look, you want to get closer to God? You want spiritual growth? You want full forgiveness? Do you want salvation? You must be born again. God must enter and bring life and change your desires from within. The horribly challenging part of this whole thing is Nicodemus was a really, really good and faithful guy. And basically what Jesus is saying is this, with everyone, every single person, even the morally and religiously very, very good, like Nicodemus, there's something fundamentally wrong. There's something fundamentally dead within us. Even the best life lived is a dead end apart from God. What's needed, Jesus says, is new life, complete spiritual rebirth or resurrection. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus like looking at somebody who might be a swing coach for some pointers, for some direction. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, all that you've done, your entire life lived, all that you've memorized, the theology that you grasp, the perfect meticulous life that you've followed, It can't help you. 
Nicodemus, like all of us, needs to abandon his goodness, his religiousness, his self-salvation project. It's what Paul is talking about in Philippians when Paul talks about his own life. You see, Paul was much like Nicodemus. He was a faithful Jew. Everything about him was somebody who followed the law, who understood the scriptures, and in every way he was perfectly morally good and religious. And then Paul says, but when he came to faith, I counted everything in my past as a loss for the sake of Christ, for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. I consider all my goodness as about as worthwhile as rubbish, trash, dung. Nicodemus, you need to have that same view. You must be born again. Now, this whole born-again thing was a very challenging thing for Nicodemus. It was the part of the conversation that really tripped him up. But the second half of the conversation would have chased him away. Because Jesus not only says you need to be born again, even you, Nicodemus, need to be born again. He says, you must believe in the Son of Man. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. The Son of God is the implication. And as the Son of Man will be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life, he's saying, as I am going to be lifted up on the cross, you must believe in me if you want to have eternal life. And then he goes on in John 3.16 to give us the summary of the gospel when he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The emphasis there is on God's love for us, and not only for us, but for the entire world. You see, as Nicodemus is hearing this, he's thinking in the Old Testament way of thinking, God loves his covenant faithful people. And Jesus comes along and says, God loves the world. The world is everybody outside of the covenant. It's people who are not faithful. It's our sinful selves. In John 3, 16, Jesus says, God loves us in all of our brokenness and sinfulness, so much so that he gave his one and only son, his monogenus, you know what that is, mono, one, genus, type, kind, his one-of-a-kind son. He's not one of many sons. He is the son. That whoever believes in him, and Jesus is saying, whoever believes in me, the one and only son of God, will not perish but have eternal life. See, being born again spiritually is an act of God. Even in Nicodemus's case, he needed it. He needed to be born again. But the even more challenging thing was that it all centered on faith in Jesus Christ as God's Son, the Savior, the Messiah and Lord. I think for Nicodemus, believing in this was incredibly hard. Two things in his life got in the way of really buying into this whole Jesus thing, this whole born again, this whole Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior. One was he had so much knowledge, and the second was he had so much goodness. Think about his knowledge. Believing, according to what Jesus is saying here, is more than just an intellectual or academic pursuit. If it was, Nicodemus had everything. He was the teacher of Israel. He understood the scriptures. He knew theology. Jesus is pushing against that, saying, being reborn spiritually, having faith in me, is not about figuring it out mentally alone. 
Now, as a pause there, Christianity is not anti-intellectual. Christianity is not against reason. In some Eastern religions, you're supposed to detach from your mind, escape from thinking. In Islam, you're not allowed to question or challenge the faith. Of course, most of us are schooled in Western secularism, where the only thing is the intellect and observation. And the spiritual and eternal, there's no room for them. But of course, our Western intellectual secularism seems to lack categories for things like love and beauty and longing for eternity that are in each one of us. Christianity is not anti-intellectual. In fact, it's the most examined religion in the history of the world. More PhDs are written on and challenging scripture and the validity of Christianity than in any world religion. And most of what we're used to in the West, which is thinking and reason and challenging things, all are birthed out of a Christian worldview that suggests it's okay to seek and challenge and look. God wants to use our minds. But intellect and observation alone are not enough to be reborn. Nicodemus has the theology, he has the knowledge, he has human wisdom, he's observed the things Jesus has done, but he's tripped up because he doesn't really get why he needs rebirth or how God became a man or that the Messiah would be lifted up and crucified. For us, there are always going to be aspects of the gospel that are going to challenge an intellect-only approach. Because in the end, it requires faith, and faith requires humility. And in my experience, the more knowledge I have, the more proud I tend to get. And I could th- you can think about this in almost any area that you have a lot of knowledge of, of anything. And I have an incredibly large amount of knowledge of football. I, I played youth football for eight years. I sat on the bench for two years. I've won three fantasy football championships. So whenever I get into a conversation about the finer points of football, I always get my superior mentality on. I'll, I'll nod as if they have something to say to me, but I know better. I mean, it really is intellectual arrogance. We do this with whatever area we happen to be experts on. Nobody else can say anything. I know. Knowledge alone is not enough. The Spirit of God must bring a realization of who Jesus is, which is deeper and more life-altering than knowledge alone can provide. Nicodemus needed that. We need that. The second thing that got in the way of Nicodemus believing in what Jesus is talking about is his goodness. He was a Pharisee. He was a leader of the Jews. Now, many of us have taken that word Pharisee, and we tend to think of it as being hypocritical. But in Jesus' day and age, a Pharisee wasn't necessarily hypocritical. In fact, they were the most religiously faithful people you would know. Rabbis were respected in the community. He had studied the scriptures and walked in them meticulously. You wanted your son to grow up to be one of them. You wanted your daughter to marry one of them. You wanted your next door neighbor to be one. These are good citizens, great people, the most morally upstanding people you could possibly know. We have people like that all around us, just really good people. 
probably a lot of us feel we, we sort of fit that category. You see, the Pharisees believed that a faithful Jew, a faithful Jew was one who would participate in God's kingdom. And Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 it's those who believe in me who will. Think about that. If Nicodemus, with his religious knowledge, his moral goodness, his social standing in the community, could not enter the kingdom of God on the basis of who he was or what he did, then none of us can. The gospel says everyone needs to be reborn. Everyone needs Jesus. This is what Paul was talking about in Ephesians 2, which, part of which we recited in our confession of faith today. And it's the idea that each of us, by nature, needs God to intervene. Paul writes, You were dead in the trespasses and sins, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Every one of us is by nature at enmity with God. Sinners. But God, the great but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. The most faithful, the most messed up, are all equally dead, apart from God intervening in our lives. Christians love conversion stories One of the more famous ones is that of a murderer. In 1976, New York City was rampaged and terrorized by a man who was killing people, murdering them. He left a note that the police found that said, I am a monster, the son of Sam. When the son of Sam, David Berkowitz, was finally arrested, he flashed one of those evil, grotesque grins at the camera. But 10 years later, this murderer, this Satan worshiper, came to faith in Jesus Christ when somebody else in the prison pointed him to Psalm 34, 6. And he read, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The son of Sam came to faith in Jesus Christ, repenting of all that he had done. In 1999, Larry King did an interview with him, and the entire time, David Berkowitz, all he could talk about was Jesus Christ and his faith in Jesus Christ and being forgiven and wanting other people to know about Jesus Christ. He prayed a prayer on the camera so that others could come to faith in Jesus Christ. And he declared, I was a murderer, the son of Sam, and I am now a forgiven sinner, a son of hope. In contrast to that, there's the story of conversion of a young man who grew up in West Virginia. He didn't break any of the rules. He was a very good kid. He went to church every Sunday, had essentially memorized the Methodist hymnal from his years of being in church as a kid. He went off to college, and an older student sat him down, invited him to this Bible study. He went because he was a good kid, and for the first time, he heard this gospel message. And Corky Eddins came to faith in Jesus Christ. 
because somebody shared with him this good news. Which conversion story is more surprising? Son of Sam or Corky Edens? According to John 3, according to what Jesus is talking about, the more surprising one is Corky Edens. The nice guy, the kind neighbor, the faithful husband, the hard worker, sees no need for rebirth or a savior. Maybe a little fine-tuning here or there. Good guys say, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm good enough, right? Until Nicodemus could consider all of his goodness as rubbish, he's lost. You must be born of the Spirit, Jesus says. He goes on to say in verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh. In other words, the things that we do of our own strength, living a good life, trying to be as good as we possibly can, can only give birth to human recognition. Maybe you'll be a good citizen, but being an acceptable good citizen does not bring you closer to God or lead to eternal life. This is hard for us. We're performance-driven people. We live in a performance-driven society, and this whole 10,000 hours thing that Malcolm Gladwell was talking about makes sense. If our children are going to be good at piano, they need 10,000 hours. If you're going to be an excellent salesperson or write perfect legal, legal contracts or be a better teacher, you need 10,000 hours of experience. We buy into that. And so we bring that into our faith, into our religion, into our spirituality, I've got to figure it out. I've got to get better, be more disciplined. I need some teachers and some more practice. And so some of us will even come to church like going to the driving range, get a few swings in, maybe even get a, a pointer or two from the, that golf guru who can kind of work on my backswing and where I'm, where I'm turning it over wrong. But to the extent that we look at our faith from a performance view, from a I've got to do it, mentality. We are either going to be succeeding to some extent, and therefore we're going to end up being really proud because our confidence will be in ourself. And then we're probably going to be less loving. Or if we're performance-oriented with our faith and we're struggling, we're falling in sin or beginning to doubt, because we can never be sure we've done enough, we're just going to walk around feeling guilty and crushed. Jesus is being really clear here. The gospel is not advice. The gospel is not an instruction manual. The gospel is good news that changes everything. And the closest equivalent that I could come to is something that's been mentioned here before. The good news of the gospel is like the good news that it's a snow day and you don't have to go to school because it's been canceled. There's nothing better than being a kid and waking up to find out school has been canceled. That is good news that changes everything. Think about it. There's nothing you did to accomplish it. There's nothing you can do that can take it away. It's a new reality 
that you then get to enter into and enjoy. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is the declaration of what God has done for us in Jesus on the cross. And it wants to change everything. For the seeker, for the doubter, for the wise, for the foolish, for the good, for the bad, for the murderer, for the deacon. It's good news. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for the salvation that you offer us in Jesus Christ, your son. I am thankful that it does not depend upon the amount of knowledge we accomplish, the good things that we do, but it depends on your son, Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for us. Let us accept and embrace this good news and enjoy the transformation that your spirit brings. Amen. Thank you.